0: Let's dive right in. Amy Carmichael was born the week before Christmas in 1867 in Northern Ireland. She was the oldest of seven children. Amy loved the colors and sounds of the ocean near her home. Most of all, she loved blue. Her mother had the bluest of eyes and Amy began to wish for blue eyes. Her own were brown. Sparkling with mischief, full of life, not missing a thing, but brown. Amy was taught about God and his son, the Lord Jesus, by her mother and at church each week. She knew that God loved her and that Jesus had come from heaven to earth to die on a cross for her sins and that he had risen from the dead. Every day, the Carmichael family spent time together reading the Bible and praying. God answers prayer. Amy had been told over and over. God always answers. She was only three years old when she prayed for blue eyes. One night at bedtime, she knelt down and asked God to make her brown eyes a beautiful blue. She never doubted for one minute that he would. God always answers prayer, she thought, as she fell asleep. In the morning, she sprang out of bed and pushed a chair across to the drawers where a mirror stood. She clambered up and stood still, staring. Blue eyes? No, it was a pair of tragic brown eyes that stared back at her. God hadn't answered. Nothing had happened. She had prayed and believed, and he hadn't answered. As she leaned against the drawers, struggling to keep back her tears, something very important happened. She had thought God wasn't paying any attention when she prayed. She thought he simply didn't answer. But is it no an answer? It, It was when her mother said it. It certainly was when her father said it. So God had answered after all. When Amy was grown up, she went to India as a missionary. She was eager to learn the language so she could tell the people of the living God who loved them. She also wanted to understand more about the strange gods they worshiped and how they worshiped them in their big stone temples. She often wished she could wander along among the Indians in the marketplace or into the temples without the Indian people becoming suspicious. No outsider was ever invited into the temple. She experimented until she found that coffee would stain her face and arms, a lovely brown like the Indian women. She wore Indian clothing that covered her. Missionary friends examined her. Yes, you look Indian, all right. Sorry, I lost my place. It is a very good disguise, Amy smiled. Would her plan work? Surely no one would look twice at a brown-skinned woman in Indian dress. It is very fortunate that your eyes are brown and not blue, added a friend. You would never pass for an Indian woman then. Blue eyes? Suddenly, Amy remembered her disappointment as a little girl. God had said no. Now she understood the reason for that one small disappointment. She needed brown eyes. God had given the best answer. Wearing her disguise, Amy was able to walk right past the priests and into the outer court of a temple. She saw the idol the people worshipped and the little children who became the idol slaves living as temple prostitutes making money for the priests. She longed to tell these people of the living God who loved them and gave his son to save them. Most of all, she prayed that God would help her to tell the temple children about him. And the God who answered her prayer about blue eyes so many years ago answered this prayer too. And over the years, Amy rescued and taught over a thousand temple children about the true God who loved them. So to Amy's little child's mind, she thought she was asking for something good, something that would improve her life, even make her a little bit more like her mother. But it was not God's plan for her to have her heart's desire of blue eyes. Now, we might chuckle at that simple example and marvel how God used her brown eyes in later years, but how often do we stop to assess What is it that we have been given that we don't want? Or ask for something good our heart truly desires and our gracious God says no. Our eyes and our hearts fill up with tears because we just don't understand why God would withhold good things or allow bad, painful circumstances. What are our minds dwelling on as we walk in our day-to-day life? What do our hearts long for as we trudge through each day? So as we move through our passage, we are going to be asking ourselves three questions. What are we to be treasuring? What are we to be focusing on? And what are we to be seeking? So if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you're not there already, Matthew chapter 6. And we will be beginning in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you so worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothes himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing?' For the Gentiles eagerly seek out all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So ladies, we're in the section of the book of Matthew that is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount because it was delivered to the disciples of Jesus on the mountainside there by the Sea of Galilee. It starts all the way back at Matthew 5, 1 and moves forward. The Sermon on the Mount is to the disciples of Jesus Christ, and it is only those who have been described in the first part of the sermon that can really put these things into practice and only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is, first of all, a description of the person which Jesus is speaking in the form of the Beatitudes as Jesus describes the person to whom the sermon is applicable. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. These are the children of God. These are the characteristics of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus tells them what the reaction of the world will be towards them. And that is of persecution, not understanding them, reviling them, saying all manner of evil against them falsely. But their response to the world's reviling is to be rejoicing and to be exceeding glad. And then he tells them the effect that they are to have upon the earth. Ye are the salt or the preserving influence in a a corrupting society. You are the light in the darkness. And then Jesus begins talking to them concerning the law and its relationship to the believer. He declares to them, he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. But then that mind boggling statement, when Jesus said to his disciples, accept your righteousness, exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's remember the scribes and the Pharisees spent their entire life trying to keep every little part of the law. Jesus went on to explain what he meant. For he began to give them five illustrations of the law as it was being taught and practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. And he contrasted that with the law as it was intended when it was first given by God. And the basic difference between the way the law was being practiced and taught by the Pharisees and the way the law was intended by God in each case was that the Pharisees were teaching and practicing the law in a strict outward observance. They were keeping the law from an outward aspect, but the way God intended was spiritual, governing my spirit, my attitude. They developed a whole wrong reaction to the law. As they looked at the law and their outward fulfillment of the requirements of the law, they felt very self-satisfied very self-righteous and very proud and judgmental against all men. Paul said, I gladly threw over that righteousness that I once had, which was of the law. Those things which were gained to me under the law, I counted for loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse that I may know him and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through faith. So, this new relationship with God, righteousness by faith and by believing in Jesus Christ and God having been imparted, thereby my righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, because God has imparted to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therein, my only hope of entering the kingdom of heaven is my God-given faith in God's finished work through Jesus Christ in achieving for me that righteous standing before God. Now we get into chapter six and here Jesus, first of all, enunciates a principle, and it is the method of all great teachers, There's the statement of the principle and then the illustration and amplification of that principle. So the principle is this. This is Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. Now he's talking here about the motives for which you do things. So Christ gives specific illustrations of these righteous acts in giving to the poor, prayer, in fasting, and not doing any of those to be noticed by men. He then transitions into talking about what people prize above all else. And this is where we pick up in verse 19. So number one on your outlines, the first question we are going to ask ourselves is, what are we to be treasuring? What are we to be treasuring? Matthew 6, 19 says, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, "'where moth and rust destroy "'and where thieves break in and steal.'" As we ask ourselves what we are to be treasuring, we first see A, the futility of earthly treasures. The futility of earthly treasures. So that the, the phrase, store up there, Means to gather, to lay up, to heap up. As I was reading that and, and digging into that, the image that came to my head was a king with piles of gold kind of in the cartoons, and you see him gathering them up with an evil chuckle, ha ha ha. And then shoving it into a room to make sure he is king overall. That that is kind of the spirit of that word, that heaping up for yourselves. So, and then treasures there is the place in which good and precious things are collected and laid up, collected treasures. So James in his book describes for us what is going to happen one day to one who stores up his treasures on the earth. Listen carefully as I read it for you and see if you can pick out similarities to verse 19 that we just read. So I'm reading James 5, 1 through 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mow your fields and which has been held by, withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." So maybe you're relieved in your own mind as I read that, go, whew, well, that's definitely not me. But as we consider these verses, do we have echoes of those mindsets? So we see misery in that first verse because the rich is not lasting. So their hope must have been in those riches. Do we become miserable when our hope is in our riches? When problems arise in your life, are you pushed to run to Christ and cry out to Him, or do you just throw money at the problem or sit there and complain because you wish you had a little more money to throw? Now, we might not see withhold wages from someone, but we see in these verses a dishonesty motivated by greed. So we say, well, I mean, I don't have any employees. I'm not holding on to money that's owed to others, but it's tax season. Are we tempted to be dishonest on our taxes so that we wouldn't have to pay so much? We might not think it's a big deal since, you know, our government, don't they have plenty of money? But is that the way a disciple of Christ should live? Do we strive to live a lush life of pleasure, fattening ourselves on pillows of ease instead of rolling up our sleeves to do the work our king has commanded of us? Do we run from thing to earthly thing thinking, this will make me happier, this will make us more money, this will give me more security? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs Burroughs, excuse me, wrote a sequel to his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Yvonne quoted from that last week, but he wrote a sequel called Contentment, Prosperity, and God's Glory. So, in The Rare Jewel, he warns his congregation how to be content when you don't have anything. In his sequel, Contentment, Prosperity, and God's Glory, he warned his congregation how to be content when they had much. In it, he says, "'Oh, a prosperous condition is immensely pleasing to the flesh. It feeds a man's lusts and makes them stronger. This is the reason the word rarely ever does any good to those who are full, meaning those who have plenty. Ordinarily, the poor receive the gospel. The scriptures say,' Not many rich, not many mighty, not many great ones. Why? Because they have so many material goods with which to feed their lusts that their lusts grow too strong. These lusts become so strong that they resist the word. They resist all the means that might do them any good. In Deuteronomy six eleven to 12, God tells his people in regards to the promised land, that they were to have houses full of good things. And then he commands, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, let me be very clear. I am not saying that you can't have a savings account or an emergency food stash. We are not monks. We don't swear a vow of poverty. We give thanks to our God for all his blessings. What I am saying is that your heart needs to not be set on those things as your anchor and that you need to keep your heart set on God because those things can be wiped away at any moment. So how do you know if your heart is treasuring the things of this earth? Well, what if I told you I'd been to your bank And somebody had hacked into your account and drained it all. And they got your retirement too. Savings, checkings, retirement, it's all gone. What is your immediate gut reaction to that? What do you immediately, where does your heart go? Where does your mind go? Or what if we go into mandatory house lockdown and you go into your basement and mice have gotten into your emergency food stash and hasn't ruined it all? Would you immediately cry out to God and trust that he would provide? Or would you respond in anger at how life is just so unfair? Where does your heart immediately turn to? So here we see earthly treasures are futile, but the next verse shows us B. The security of heavenly treasures. Look down at verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jeremiah Burroughs said, a man who has truly learned how to abound will say, it is the glory of God that completes and gives fullness to my estate or home to my honor and comforts. It is communion with God that I enjoy in these things. And that's what truly causes my soul to rejoice. For someone with a grace-filled heart, it is not enough to have the peace of God. He must have the God of peace. It is not enough to have honor from God. He must have the God of that honor." All the riches in the world cannot satisfy him unless he has the God that gave him those riches. You have finally learned how to abound when your heart can pass quickly through created things and move on to enjoy God as your most prized possession. So ladies, this is a balanced view of having things. Do you realize we are all wealthy when you compare us to the rest of the world? Americans, just your normal American, is in the top two percentile of the world's wealth. Do we seek communion with God when all the bills are paid? When there's plenty in the fridge and the pantry? When work is flowing in at a rapid pace? Are we content with our much? Or are we we always wanting just just a little more, just a little more comfort or just a little more to help us feel secure. Colossians 3.1 tells us, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So ladies, what are we to be treasuring? We are to lay up all our treasures in heaven where nothing can corrupt it. So our next question we need to ask ourselves is number two, what are we to be focusing on? Now, when I first started reading these verses, I was a bit confused on what they might mean. And it was fascinating as I dug in. Matthew 6, the eye is a lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. So A, a right focus produces light. Now, I found it fascinating that in the KJV, that word clear there is translated single, meaning a single focus, not being double-sided able to focus correctly on an object or working properly. So if your eye is clear, if it's working properly, if it's not seeing double, then the body will be full of light. So it's almost as though if if you are a tightrope walker, do you watch the rope moving below you or the people way down on the ground below you? No. If you watch them, they will pick an object in the distance and stare directly at it, single focus. Or have you ever seen one of those guys that can do the log across, across water and they spin it, but they stay, they don't look at their feet, they don't look at the log, they don't look at the rapidly moving water, straight ahead, singular focused, focus straight ahead. That is what our focus is to be like. Singular in focus, second corinthians four six and seven said, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God.' and not from ourselves. So if a right focus produces light, then B, a wrong focus produces darkness. Look at verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is, that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. So that word bad there, when it's referring to the eye, it means diseased are not working properly. This is taking as a contrast to the clear eye allowing the body to be full of light. You can't do both. Either your focus is clear, single, or it's broken, it's diseased, it's impaired. And then the whole body is thrown into darkness. Christ clarifies what he means by this in the next verse. So see, your focus indicates the direction Of love and devotion love and devotion look down at verse 24 no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve God and wealth now you might be saying in your mind but Rach I I don't hate God I would never hate God. But the underlying of that word in the Greek, hate means to love less, to postpone in love or esteem, to slight. And that word devoted, you can't, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Devoted means to keep oneself directly opposite to anyone, to hold him firmly cleave to, paying heed to him, and despise there means to disdain, to think little or nothing of. Now, as I was thinking through these things, and I am very visual, you all know that, I've mentioned that more than once, but as I was thinking devoted, I loved how it described it, to keep oneself directly opposite to anyone, hold to him firmly, cleave to, paying heed to him, So that would be like, if I am wholly devoted to my friend, Michelle, and I see her, I'm gonna cleave to her and say, Michelle, it is so good to see you. If I am devoted to my relationship and my conversation with her, I am going to be staring at her to give her my full attention. Now, my friend Dolly back there, can I pay this much devoted attention to her if I'm devoted to my friend, Michelle? No, I'm thinking little of her because I'm so devoted to my friend Michelle. But my back is to Dolly. I have to turn away from her to focus here. Just the same as God and wealth. You cannot do both. That cannot there means an impossibility. It's not you shouldn't. It's, it's impossible. You cannot do it. It's either one or the other. So don't think... Well, I just want a little bit more, but I still love God. I'm okay. No. One or the other. We cannot be a double-minded man or we will be unstable in all our ways. We cannot be trying to cleave to the things of this world, our comforts, our things, our earthly relations. We can be so fretful. What if God takes it all away? Jeremiah Burroughs speaks to this. It is better to know how to honor God with these good things I have. There's your contentment. Than to know how I can get more. It's better to know how I might behave myself in the enjoyment of those good things God has given me. Than to know how to get more of those good things. I use it, yes. But I do not use it for myself. So much as for God. I know how to be full when I can see the opportunities for service that God has given me in my fullness. Do you hear what he's saying? God has blessed you with all these many different things, but not so you can heap it and scoop it up for yourself. It's so that you can offer it up to him in in joyful service. It is a joyful thing. And two, what is yours that hasn't been given to you? God is asking our service, but he's the one that even gives us the strength, the ability, the opportunity, and we offer it back up to him. A healthy amount of self-discipline and self-control goes a long way when it comes to thinking about the things we've been blessed with. The only reason we have anything is for the purpose of serving our God, not to fret about getting more or fear at being taken away. So what are we to be treasuring? We are to be laying up our treasures in heaven. What are we to be focusing on? Our focus is to be singularly focused on our service to God. And we also need to ask number three, what are we to be seeking? What are we to be seeking? Matthew 6, 25 says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So here, A, we see the futility of worrying. The futility of worrying. For this reason, that phrase there points back to what he has said in verses 19 through 24. Because we have heavenly treasure and are focused rightly on our service to God, because of those things, we should not be worried about our lives. Brian Borgman defined that word "worried" there as anxiety in the face of something that may come and is often linked with fear, concern over what might happen. It doesn't look to God. It doesn't look to his word or his promises. It only walks by sight. That is the worry there. Our friend Amy Carmichael said, if you would live in victory, you must refuse to be dominated by the seen and the felt. We've got to refuse. I will not allow the things I'm feeling, the things I'm seeing to dominate me. I will trust that my heavenly father is taking care of me. Now we have to remember, Jesus is talking to a crowd that does not have a Walmart. Jesus is talking to a crowd that doesn't have a refrigerator. Completely unknown to them. So it's a very much an agricultural society. Being concerned about that day's food was a real concern for these people. It was a daily concern. You often only had enough food for that day, or you had to be very, very careful that you did not eat too much so that way your food supply would last you all the way until that next harvest. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, right? And yet this is the audience that Christ is saying, do not worry. Clothing also was not easily made nor was it easily attained. In the ancient world, clothing reflected a caste system or a level system. Nicer clothes, higher level people. So rich people would wear fine silks and bright colors since those colors took special processing and dyeing the fabric. Wealthy people would even bequeath clothing to their children as part of their inheritance. They would pack these beautiful clothing away, henceforth the moth issue, and that being a real thing for them of corruption of your fabrics. Poor people's cloaks would not only provide warmth during the day, day, but also at night. If you were working hard, you're a farmer, you're out in the field, you would work until sundown, you would usually lay right there in the field, cover up with your cloak. Clothing was precious to these people. They didn't have closet like, like us. I went my closet this morning. I had a plethora to choose from. My hard time is what to choose. Or does this match this? They did not have that problem. What they had is what they had. And these are the people that Christ is saying, do not worry. He asked "There is Is life not more than food? He's he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. It's a rhetorical question. And in the Greek, we can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, the rhetorical question automatically assumes a positive response. Yes, life is more than food, the body more than clothing. So look back down at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they So that that word look there means to look carefully and thoughtfully. And Chris, when he taught on this years ago, he said, imagine that word look immediately takes the focus off yourself and considering what God is teaching you through something like the birds of the air. Israel is on a migration path. Lots and lots of birds to observe there. And he says, look, look carefully carefully back down to 27. And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Very good question. And ladies, now we know worry actually shortens our life. Proverbs 12:25 says, "Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down." Worry can affect the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. It robs our sleep at night so that our cells are not able to rejuvenate. It causes ulcers, heart palpitations. So why do we excuse it and not work diligently to mortify this sin in our lives and put on that righteous fear of the Lord and trust in his work in our lives? Do we actually challenge ourselves by saying, okay... My anxiety right now is a lack of trust in my Heavenly Father. Call it what it is. Sometimes if you're struggling with that anxiety, you need to make yourself realize, I am not trusting my Heavenly Father. It's easy to say, oh, I just, I just struggle with anxiety. But really you need to say, I struggle with a lack of trust in my Heavenly Father correctly identifying what is wrong with our thought patterns and our heart focus can actually help correct that focus. Look back down at 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now, ladies, I love spring because that means warmth is coming. I am not a cold weather gal. I love warmth. And to me, real spring hits East Tennessee when you're driving down the Pellissippi Parkway and you see all the daffodils coming up on either side. Whoever did that, gorgeous, I love it. So when we first moved here a billion years ago, about 20, 20-ish, a little more than that, but I remember driving down Pellissippi and going, this is glorious, look at the cheerful little yellow flowers on either side, they're gorgeous. God weaves this together. Even Solomon, who was known for his repertoire of clothing. Richest man on earth. It was legendary, that man's clothing. And yet, the flowers here today, gone tomorrow. I went out. I needed some flowers for um, the elders come to our house sometimes to meet. And I, I just needed something for a vase on the table, you know, just to cheer it up. I went out to cut some daffodils I had seen a couple of days before. The frost got them. Gone. Gone. So just like that, here, God gives beauty in something that's here today, gone tomorrow. So what does Christ say? But if God so... Verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thro- thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Brian Borgman said, Here Christ puts his finger on the cause of anxiety and worry. Being of little faith. Worry is the antithesis of faith. And remember who he's talking to, his disciples. The focus of the word is not on the smallness of their faith. Does anybody remember how big does faith need to be to be able to move mountains? size of a mustard seed. The fact that they had almost no faith at all when, excuse me, it's the fact that they had almost no faith at all when they're doubting in God's care for them. Look back down at 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Adam Clark said, these three inquiries, the what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing? These three inquiries engross the whole attention of those who are living without God in the world. The belly and the back of a worldly are his compound God and these he worships in the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eye and the pride of life. So here's why we worry, ladies. Excuse me. Here's why we don't worry. That's what pagans do. Our, our today and our tomorrow are in the hands of an almighty God who loves us and knows what we need before we even ask him. We don't need psychics or poem readers to tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. But pagans strive after those things because they don't know what tomorrow holds or Who holds tomorrow? But pagans don't have a heavenly father who lovingly takes care of them. They receive common grace, but they do not know God as their heavenly father. So why do we act like we don't have a heavenly father by worrying? God sometimes even provides for us before we even know what or how to ask. Or provides for us before we ask when we should have asked already. So looking ahead, B, the security of seeking God first. We had the futility of worrying. Now we're going to see the security of seeking God first. Love this first word in verse 33. Matthew 6, 33 is the verse that Ron has chosen as our Kingdom Kid verse. This is the verse why Kingdom Kids has its name. Um, and it's, our, it's kind of our motto verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that word but, here's the contrast. Here's what to do instead. We're not to act like the pagans. So what are we to do? We are to seek first. That word first, it means preeminently above all else. But what are we to be seeking above all else? His kingdom. Brian Borman said his kingdom is valuing what God values and obeying his commands. Seeking God's kingdom is a resolve to live under God's control and his priorities and recognizing his kingship and his righteousness. Remember, he's talking to us about not being a hypocrite, but being truly righteous, being shaped by a total commitment of seeking and serving my Father. We need to reflect His righteousness and seek after that. This is not be good and then you get all this stuff. This is not what this verse is saying. He is simply promising to care for you. He is not promising that his people will not suffer. He is not promising that he will care for you in the way that you think you need to be cared for. The general principle is this. God takes care of his people, both through ordinary means and supernatural means when he chooses. Jeremiah Burroughs said contentment Is not by addition, all these things will be added to you. Contentment is not by addition, but by subtraction. Seeking to add a thing will not bring contentment. Instead, subtracting from your desires until you are satisfied only with Christ brings contentment. So we see the futility of worry, the security of seeking God first. And now see, Christ admonishes us, so don't worry. Matthew 6.34 says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Ladies, do we not often worry the most about tomorrow? What might happen? We look ahead and we try to problem solve and troubleshoot before we even get there. And our emotions get inflamed and we get worked into a dizzy thither. We sit there and wring our hands and fret and fume about tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and 99.9% of what we were concerned about never even happens. We sit there and struggle with, but what if? But what if? But what if? Or we look backwards. Oh, if I had only. Oh, if I had only. If I would only said this. If I would only done this. Then all would be well. What if tomorrow? What if my child? What if my husband? What if my mom and dad? Is that not what we do in our own selves? We fume, we furry, our stomachs get inflamed. Ulcers, here we come, right? We chuck the tums, hoping that'll help, but it doesn't. A pill is not gonna help what's going on in the heart. We need to correctly identify what's going on. Now, this doesn't mean we don't work hard or care for others. So if you're like, well, Rachel, you told me, don't worry. I'll just leave it alone. I'm just gonna sit here, let go and let God. It'll be grand. I'm just gonna be sitting here waiting. It'll be fine. That's fine. No, I love this quote by Martin Luther, such a witty fellow. Martin Luther said, God wants nothing to do with the lazy gluttonous bellies who are neither concerned nor busy. They act as if they just had to sit and wait for God to drop a roasted goose into their mouth. So you might be saying, okay, Rach, but how do I know the difference? People often excuse worry by saying, well, I'm, I'm not worried, I'm just really concerned. That is what's wrong, I'm just concerned, it's not worry. So how do we have that balance? Okay, Rach, you're telling me I should do something, but you're also telling me don't worry Where's that balance? I found this to be very, very helpful. Worry is not to be confused with diligent care and concern toward our responsibilities. There is such a thing as a legitimate concern for a legitimate need. Worry is not to be equated to planning for the future. Of course, we always make our plans with the stipulation, Lord willing, As James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. There is nothing wrong with preparing for the future. That's being wise. Go to the Proverbs. Talks about it. There's actually nothing wrong with developing a God-honoring plan to try to keep away potential adversity that might happen. So what's wrong is when we anxiously focus our attention on what may go wrong in the future as though the Lord is not going to provide for you or is absent from this situation. For example, a man who lost a job should have a legitimate concern to be able to provide for his family. That legitimate concern is going to motivate him to go look for another job. But there is a temptation for that man or even his wife to go beyond that normal concern and become anxious and fret about the future. We must be careful because every legitimate concern can become a temptation to worry sinfully. We're overcome by worried and anxious thoughts when we become so focused on the cares and concerns of life that God no longer is in the picture. The question is, how do we recognize the difference? Normal concern is accompanied by a trust in the sovereignty and faithfulness of God in the midst of a problem. In normal concern, you still have an inner peace for you know God is at work in some way and he's going to provide for your future need. Worry is only focused on the problem and you will become filled with anxiety, panic, and fear. In other words, when you worry, there is a loss of hope and a loss of trust in God. So, as we carefully think through what we are treasuring, what we are focused on, and what we are seeking... Let's strive after a heart that is laying up its treasures in heaven, a focus that is devoted to its service to our king and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first above all else. One more quote as we think through our continuing fight with anxiety. Sometimes when we read the words, this is Amy Carmichael, Sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent, "Oh, I feel as that I shall never be like that." But they won through step by step, by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories, by faithfulness in very little things they became what they are. No one sees these little steps. They only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. There is no sudden triumph. That is the work of the moment. We have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them.